0: We're in Isaiah 42, and this is. I want to talk a little bit about structure to begin with because um, it's important for us to understand kind of where we are. So, in in Isaiah 41, which we looked at last week, um, there were some there. There was a really interesting development because in Isaiah 41, what we have is this this whole uh, scene of judgment. Um. And this is going to be a key term, by the way, this, this scene of judgment. But in the midst of that judgment, um, what we see is that God's going to preserve this people, this collective people. And if you look back at verses 8 through 10 of Isaiah 41, you'll see some of the terms given, the labels given to this people whom God's going to save. And one of the labels given, interestingly enough, is this label, Servant. Um, which normally you think of as a singular, and in fact we're going to see it used as a singular, but it seems in Isaiah 41, it's a little bit unclear, but it seems in Isaiah 41 that he's talking about the servant as a kind of collective group. These are the people who will be saved in the midst of his judgment. And so what Isaiah 41, the question it answers is, how is God going to accomplish his salvation, which he says in chapter 40 he will definitely do, How's he going to do that? Well, he's going to do it through judgment, judgment on all the people. Remember, he says, coastlands, come and receive your judgment. It's kind of people from all the earth. But in the midst of them receiving judgment, which is going to lead to salvation, uh, there are these people who are preserved in the midst of it. Now, then what he does at the end of 41 is gives a a particular uh, judgment, a particular verdict, if you will, Against these idols and uh, against these, you know, these gods that are worshipped by the peoples who are going to be judged. So that's chapter forty-one, and that's kind of the theology of chapter forty-one. Now, look at the. So just remember, you know, if you want to think about these two key words, um, bear those in mind. Um, questions about that? Does, that? does that all ring ring a bell from from last Sunday? Okay. Um, so then. At the end of chapter 41, look at this word that's used. Uh, he's, he's summarizing the judgment on the idols. Behold, he says, they are a delusion. They are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty winds. So the verdict, the kind of final verdict on the idols is they can't do anything. They're not going to withstand the coming judgment. And those who worship them aren't going to withstand the coming judgment. And then there's another behold at the beginning of chapter forty-two, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So, um, what what we have at the beginning of forty-two is this: this second "Behold," and it picks up on the key terms from chapter forty-one. The key terms in chapter 41 were justice or judgment, this Hebrew word mishpat, and and that's what's brought up here. And then we've got the servant back on the scene, only here what we're going to find is the servant is really an individual, is described in individual terms rather than in collective terms as he is in chapter 41. And we'll talk a little bit more, I, I just touched on this at the end of last week, that that sort of relationship between the individual servant and the collective servant who's introduced in 41. But, so we'll, we, can, we can explore that a little bit, but for right now I just want you to see that these words are used again, connecting chapter 41 and 42. How is God going to execute judgment on, on all the people and on the idols in, specific, in, in particular? He's going to do it through his servant, and his servant is the one that he's going to uphold, unlike the idols who are not going to withstand the coming judgment? So there's a lot of kind of there are a lot of connections between 41 and 42 when we're introduced to the servant as an individual. All right, still, still with me? Okay. Um, any questions about that? You see, you see the connections I'm, I'm trying to draw out or illustrate. Okay. Now, chapter 42, just another kind of big structural thing. Chapter 42. Marks the beginning of an important section in Isaiah where Isaiah gives four servant songs, they're called. Um, Four servant songs. And in each of these servant songs, what we find is there's a similar pattern. And the pattern is this there's a description of the servant, and then there's kind of a commentary on that description. Here's what it means. Here are the implications. Here's what it teaches you about God. So we'll look at this one uh, first, but I want to actually give you all of them so that you can see the whole context. This first one, we have 42, 1 through 4, and that's kind of the description of the servant. That's the introduction. Here's who he is. Take a look at him. The spotlight's on him. And then in verses 5 through 9, in this case, we've got this commentary on the description. What does it mean? What's, what's, um, you know what, what are the implications of this? So just look at it really quick so you see what I'm talking about. Um, the description, Behold my servant whom I, am uphold, whom, I, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, etc., etc. And we'll go through the description in, in, in more detail in a second. But then look at verse 5. Thus says the God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, I am the Lord, verse 6, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So we've got the description of who he is, and then this kind of commentary, or in this case, the Lord speaking to the servant um, and describing what he will do for the servant. So it's just a further kind of unpacking of the implications of how God's going to use this servant. Uh, That's what I mean by commentary. So we've got the description and then how's he going to be used? How's the Lord going to um, carry out his ministry? And that, that'll be described. Now, that's in 42, but I told you there were four servant songs. So, so here, here are the other ones. Uh, the next one is in 49, 1 through 6, and then 7 through 13 are your commentary again, or your, you know, here's how he's going to be used. And then we've got 50, 4 through 9. And then uh, how's he going to be used? 10 and 11. Um, And then then the one that's the most famous is 52.13 to 53.12. That's the one you know because... This is, you know, uh, uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to its own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, that's a servant who's being described. Now, that one has a little more of a complex structure to it. It's not a strict, you know, um, description commentary. But if you want to have to know where the commentary is, the commentary is actually in the middle of that one. It's a kind of... Uh, if you're familiar with the term chiasmus or chiastic structure, it's, it's that's what it is, which means that basically the middle is, is the important thing. And the commentary in that one comes at the middle, which is in 53, 4 through 6. Um, and again, I, I don't want to belabor 53 because we'll spend more time on it, but let me read you that commentary just so you know what I'm talking about. Surely he has borne our griefs. See, it's not describing him so much anymore as it's explaining him. This is what he did. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. This is what we thought when we saw these things play out. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We All all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, the iniquity of us all, and if you look on either side of that, starting in fifty two thirteen, and then going all the way down to fifty three twelve. But on either side of that, what you're going to see is just a description. Here's who he was. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. His appearance was marred, etc. Um, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. That comes right after the commentary section. So there's a there's a sort of formula to it. There's a there's a method to it. And, and these are one, two, three, four servant songs. Now, um, I want to answer, try to answer a couple questions about this that might naturally emerge. One is, well, what happens in here? Because that's the big gap. You, you might expect, if this is going to be a section that's going to be oriented around four servant songs, that they would sort of be put together together. Um, but they're not. They're split up. Well, these three are put together, of course. But one and two are split up. And the question is, what's in between them? And, and the answer is, what's in between them is a, a description of the historical situation in Judah right at that time. So, if I can try to unpack the logic of it. The logic is something like this. Forty beginning back in chapter 40, which was um, which I think he did two weeks ago. It was before, it was before I was back. Um, beginning in chapter 40, you have this description of who God is and how you can count on God doing what he said he was going to do. Why can you count on it? Well, because the Lord is great and the nations are just a drop in the bucket and his greatness is just beyond what you can imagine. It's, you know, you, the, the, even the heavens are just kind of a, A minor blip. But then also, chapter 40 says, you can count on it not just because of who God is, His greatness, but because His word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So He said it, and you can trust it. Then in 41, again, this is last week, review, 41 is starting to answer the question, well, how's He going to do it? How's he going to bring about this great restoration in the midst of this promised Babylonian exodus? remember, at the end of 39, with Hezekiah, it sort of ends well. But Hezekiah is told, you know, as soon as you die, the Babylonians are coming through to take people. And Hezekiah is fine with that, because he just sort of reasons, well, at least I'm not going to see it in my lifetime. But nonetheless, if you're in Judah or Jerusalem and you're hearing that, you're saying, well, hold on, wait a minute. I think think Isaiah just guaranteed that in 15 or 20 years, when my kids are grown up, the Babylonians are going to come through. And and so it's a pretty serious indictment. So the question is, how's God going to save them? He said he would, uh, chapter 40, but how? And 41 and 42 sort of answer that question. Because 41 and 42 tell us, Here's how God's going to do it. God's going to save His people by executing worldwide judgment. That's forty-one. So He's going to execute judgment, but the judgment there are going to be a, there's going to be a group of people who are saved in the midst of that judgment. That's forty-one, whatever six through eight. Those verses we looked at. Um. And, and and yet the idols and all that they're going to be totally destroyed so so one answer to the question of how God's going to save is through judgment and through saving his people and remember the labels given to those people in 41 6 through eight servant is one but also my elect um, you know Israel he, he, he lists all these really key terms to describe these people these key labels but then but then the kind of the final part of the answer of how God's going to accomplish this, the final part of the answer is God's going to accomplish it by means of his servant. And actually, his servant is going to be the one who will execute justice on the earth. So, the, 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 in a sense, there's a while this is the first of the four servant songs, and, and you, could, you could organize it that way, it's also kind of the last piece of of this section where where we're trying to answer the question how do we know God's going to save us and how is he going to save us? And the answer to how do we know is the character of God, the word of God. The answer to how is through judgment and justice and then and then through his servant who's going to carry all that out. And then and then what we kind of are going to skip to in this gap section here is we're going to talk about the current situation and how do I live in light of that if I'm living in Jerusalem at this time? Because that's an important question. It's one thing to say, look, here's how God's going to do it and, and it's going to be focused on the servant and all that. That's really good. But then you really have another question after that, which is, but then what am I supposed to do with that right now? Because right now, I'm facing down the barrel of the Babylonian exile. And so Isaiah, the Lord speaking through Isaiah, gives very graciously. says, let me pause for a second and and, and explain to you how you should apply this to your lives right now. And, And the application is essentially, start listening to God now start trusting God's word now. If God's word is going to be what guarantees your salvation and 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 your guarantees your victory and if God's servant is going to be the focal point of that then one of the things you need to do is you need to trust God's sovereignty and you need to listen to his word right now in the moment and he talks about God's sovereignty through Cyrus and the nature of God's word and 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 how God's mercy is played out and and, and it's sort of like here's your homework now, these are the things you need to reflect on uh, while you're waiting for all this to take place. And then, after that application section, then we get to the rest of the servant songs, which further explain just how the servant is going to execute justice on the earth and, and how that's all going to play out. And the shocker, of course, it really is Isaiah 53, Because what you realize in Isaiah, or starting in 52, but going through 53, that's the real shocker because then that's when you realize, okay, he's going to execute justice, yes, by winning a victory, but actually he's going to execute justice by taking on the penalty for the sin of those who have gone astray on himself. So he's going to not just enact justice, in the ways that we'd conventionally think about justice being enacted, but also, as it were, kind of ab- absorb that into himself, and that's how there are some people who are going to be rescued in the midst of the coming day of judgment. So that's a, that's a really um, unexpected, perhaps, turn, and, and that's why we we you know th- this is really where we place our focus because. Because yeah. this sort of explains everything. This is the key to to, to everything with respect to the server. All right. So so questions about that or comments? Those are those are just some structural things. As to where we're going. Is that you, you follow me? Okay. All right. So now let's go back to this um, and and. Uh, talk about it. So we've got these two words, Mishpot, justice, judgment, servant. Um, okay. Behold my servant. So now I'm in 42.1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Now, interesting, I, I should have mentioned this. That's another word that was used back in 41. Because remember, we spent, we spent a good deal of time last week in 8 through 10 of chapter 41. And we said, who's going to be preserved in this judgment? Is anyone going to be preserved? Well, yes. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, um, fear not, verse 10. And what's interesting is those collective labels, servant, elect, chosen, um, Those co- even Israel, those collective labels are then applied Singularly, to this servant, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That's what we've been looking for. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and all the coastlands wait for his law, which, by the way, of course, again, calls you back to the beginning of 41, because at the beginning of 41, when the judgment was sort of called out, the reason why we knew it was a global judgment, a universal judgment, was Isaiah said, coastlands, all of you, come on, it's time for judgment. And here, the coastlands are going to receive his judgment, but... They're also they're also benefiting because they're receiving. They're waiting for his law. So let's look at this servant, and then we'll look at the commentary on the servant. Um. You you probably you may recognize this chapter um, from an account that's given um, in well it, it's cited actually a number of places in the New Testament, but one account that you might be most familiar with is. Um, in Matthew chapter twelve, because uh, just look at what what Jesus does here in Matthew twelve. Um, the Pharisees are just conspiring against him. He's healed this man, and uh, and 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 basically Jesus knows that the Pharisees are about to they're plotting to kill him. And the question is, you know, what's he going to do about this? How does this fit um, in, into his whole plan? And here's what it says in, in Matthew 12:15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, many followed him, and he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make it known, not to make him known. Why? Why wouldn't Jesus want them to go spread the word? Um, this, this great thing has happened. This is a the sign of, of the fact that I'm the Messiah. But but why does Jesus do this? Well, well, Matthew puts it this way. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. But but verse 19 is key. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wicked he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So what the Gospel writers see in this is, obviously, Matthew's very clear that the servant of Isaiah 42 is Jesus. And that's, that's not a surprise to us coming from our, our New Testament perspective. But, but what Matthew highlights is the fact that Jesus' work of bringing justice to the nations... Is at least initially carried out in such a way that he actually tells the people in that day that that they're they're not to spread it around. His his hour has not yet come, is how he puts it in Mark's gospel. So he's 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 verse two of Isaiah forty two. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. There's there's another description of him in verse forty one that might be a little bit surprising, because, so verse 2 addresses how Jesus' ministry will play out, but in verse 1, it says, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, this is this is interesting. If you look at, for instance, Luke's gospel, so we just went to Matthew, but if you look at Luke's gospel, actually, all the gospel writers do this. I shouldn't just single out Luke, but I'm thinking of Luke because of the way he does this going into the book of Acts. Um, But Luke is is very clear, all the Gospel writers are very clear, that Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, was done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you say, well, hold on a second, I thought Jesus was God. Yes, Jesus is God, and the Bible makes that really clear, but... What the Bible also shows us in kind of a pulling back of the curtain is that, that in, his, uh, in his humiliation, in his, in his divine, human, uh, uh, earthly, incarnate ministry, uh, the, the Spirit is at work at, in, in and through him. As a man, the Spirit is at work in and through him. And, and empowering him, and filling him, and, and, and performing these miracles, and strengthening him in his hour of temptation. And, and, and this is exactly what Isaiah 42 describes. Now, now, what's striking about this when you think about the Gospels is, this then makes it especially relevant when in Acts 2, after Jesus has ascended, Jesus says, actually, the ministry of the Spirit is going to be better for you after my ascension because I'm going to send him to you. And then we see this day of Pentecost where, where the Holy Spirit is filling all these ones on that day and, 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 and ministering through the church. And so in, and that's why I was starting with Luke because in Luke, Luke has this real clarity about how the ministry of the Spirit is working through Jesus. And then when Jesus ascends, the ministry of the Spirit is now working mightily through the apostles and then through the church. And um, and that's all, in a sense, that the, the overflow or the implication of Isaiah 42.1. I have put my Spirit upon him. Now look at verse 3 and the description there. This is a very precious description of Jesus because again, it it perhaps turns on its head or, or turns on their head, I guess, the, the, the uh the the understanding that we have of how justice gets executed. I mean you think about these movies where um I'm trying to think of a good example but a kind of like movie where where someone's just going on a rampage because to get revenge on something that was done against them, I, I don't. I don't have a good example off the top of my. Not that I haven't watched. Them. I've probably seen hundreds of them, but, but I just can't remember one. But you know what I mean. So this is what you think of as justice, like this vigilante who goes out and kind of writes every wrong. And and what's interesting about the description here is that's not the way that justice plays out. The way the justice of the servant, the messianic servant, plays out is. Um, is he's actually very careful in that the, the, the one with the slightest faith, the one with the, the greatest need and the greatest delicacy and, and weakness, he, he's not going to harm them. Because, you know, you see these, you see these uh, sort of justice movies, and there's all kinds of collateral damage. It's just kind of the way it works. If you're on the wrong side, tough luck. You're just you're gonna you're gonna get shot as well, but that's not how it works with the servant. He is going to execute justice, but it's not gonna he's not gonna be mowing down everybody indiscriminately. He's actually gonna be really careful that those who are the, the smoldering wick um, and, and the reed that's kind of falling over they're not gonna get damaged in this whole process so it's this, it's this image of both the the um, the absolute um, confidence we can have in the justice of God's servant and also the the trust we can have in in the way he'll carry it out and, and think about this for a minute sometimes you look at at the world and the way that the world is playing out or the w- way that God is carrying out his purposes or that or if you want to frame it differently the way that Christ is carrying out His work in the church, and you say, "Well, I think it should be done a little bit differently." I think, you know, sometimes in in your maybe weaker moments, you, you say, "Why doesn't He just destroy all the wicked people right now?" Well, well, hold on a minute. You know that that's that there 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 are images of destruction in the in the future, but remember that God's carrying out His purposes with wisdom. That is
1: well beyond
0: anything that we could even uh, ever orchestrate ourselves, and so it's, it's very justice is going to happen, but it's but but it's going to happen in such a way that if there's any if there's any faint hope, if there's any possibility of of restoration, if there's any need for for someone's faith, that's kind of faltering to be reignited he, he's gonna he's gonna gonna as if you were sort of work around that and, and make sure that that doesn't get affected that there's there's no collateral damage in the justice that this servant is going to carry out so is it going to happen yes is it is are all the idols eventually going to be destroyed yes but the way he's going to do it is very careful and and if you think about even your own life and the way that Jesus has worked in your own life, I think you you recognize the the importance of that verse because, because you know you know that if there was collateral damage and if it was just you know this machine gun spray of judgment, time you know anytime anyone worshiped a, a false God, that 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 none of us would be here. And, and it's only because um, the servant of the Lord in his carrying out of justice, which is happening, uh, but in the context of that is 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 doing this. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench, but he will faithfully bring forth justice. One of the most uh, precious little Puritan titles that's been... Reprinted, and a lot of them haven't been reprinted, but a lot of them have as well, and so it's good. Uh, but 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 one of one of the one of the favorites, and if you're going to sort of dip into a, to a Puritan writing, a little Puritan paperback from Banner of Truth or something, you could start with this uh, little book called "The Bruised Reed" by Richard Sibbs, and what it is is it's this really uh, touching, moving meditation on. On how Christ works among people who are really hurting and who are really, you know, struggling and and maybe doubting, um, and and it's just it's just it's just accessible and 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 helpful, but it's based on this this little verse: a bruised reed he will not. This so is a promise, actually. This little promise tucked in here: a bruised reed he will not break. Now, I want to also look at the. Um, the commentary on this uh, whole thing. Uh, yes, yeah, go ahead. So it talks about bringing, bringing forth justice to yes. the nations. I read something recently that suggested that the righteousness and justice language in the Old Testament is almost always a reference to remunerative rather than retributive justice. Um, how do you how do you read that here? Should I think of this as in bringing up? saving justice or should i think of this as wrath well i I, you know i think it's i think it's both really i i i don't think it favors remunerative justice over retributive um it if, if i had to guess and i haven't looked through i've looked through all the texts in isaiah 40 and 55 which is really where you see a lot of this justice righteousness language that gets picked up in romans um so when people talk about the righteousness of God in Romans and yeah, how does yeah. Kaiosune, how is that used in uh, Isaiah forty to fifty five. I looked at all those. I haven't looked at all of them in the whole Old Testament. I I but I, I'm fairly confident in saying it probably tips the other way, actually. But either either in in either case, whether it's you know, fifty-one forty-nine one way or the other, or sixty forty one way or the other, um I I don't think it's I don't think we can exclude the, the retributive notion of it, particularly in light of chapter 41. Because in 42, of course, you know, in any isolated case, you could take it either way. But in 41, it seems pretty clear to me that the justice that's carried out and the judgment that's carried out, the, the, the mishpot that, that the Lord is enacting, is, um, is, is, is taking people out. I mean I mean just look at that last um uh th- th- those last couple of verses uh of of chapter 41 um th- their their works are nothing their metal images are empty wind um th- they're going to be you go back and and they're going to be um destroyed the ends of the earth tremble uh, back to, all the way back to verse 5 um so so to me that The whole notion of how people are responding to it and what they're left with means there has to be a retributive, you know, aspect to it. Because they're not saying, oh good, we're finally getting recompense and that's going to be great. We're getting, you know, uh, uh, reparation. No, they're, 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 they're worried because judgment is coming in the sense that we typically mean it. So I think it's probably tilted the other way, but it's not to say there isn't both because... If you think about um, the righteousness that is described in Daniel 12 with this resurrection, um, that, that actually affects different people different ways. It's, it's retributive for those who have disobeyed the Lord, and it's restorative for those who haven't. So justice always kind of works both ways, but, but I think it would be a mistake to ignore the, the, the re- retributive. Does that, does that answer your question? Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. And you're right. That is that is in a lot of contemporary literature. I think it's an over, maybe an overcorrection at, at best. Um, okay. Other other questions or, or comments or, or thoughts? Okay. So so let's just look at this. Um, I want to make a couple more points in the commentary section, beginning in verse five. Um. The Lord's the one who's going to do this. Verse 5 is kind of like a mini Isaiah 40. Um, he's the creator. He stretched out the earth. Everybody who's breathing gets their breath from him. Um, and, then, and then here's the Lord, Yahweh, speaking in verse 6. I have called you in righteousness, which again, that's, you know, that's justice language as well. Uh, I will take you by the hand and keep you. And this I think is very significant. Um, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Now, why do I find that that's so significant? Because think about think about how we typically use the term covenant. So we typically think of a covenant as an agreement, and you know, I'm not going to argue over the specific definition, but it's, it's an agreement between two parties, right? So you've got, uh, and, and there are stipulations and consequences, and, and there's some specific details, but bottom line is, it's the kind of agreement. So you've got, you know, this person here, and this person here, and, and what's the covenant? The covenant is that sort of uh, agreement that that binds them together in some way, um, and that's how the, the relationship between the two is established. And that's kind of how it's maintained and, and, and what, the, what the details are of the nature of that relationship. And it's hugely important, as you know, because throughout the Bible, from the very beginning, from Genesis 2, on, covenants are used to define and make clear God's, um, God's relationship with his people. And so it's just it's just language that's so significant theologically. But but the point is this, the point is that the covenant is kind of the it's not always a document. I just made it into that, but it's it's the, it's the agreement between the people. Right? It's the it's the it's it's these are the stipulations between party A and party B. And and what's and, and 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 you know, as the as the Old Testament progresses, what God does in chapters like Ezekiel thirty-seven or Jeremiah thirty-one he, is he takes all this covenant, um, this covenant language, this, these covenant these covenants that He'd made, and, and kind of wraps them up into a package, and and refers to it in Ezekiel as an eternal covenant, and and refers to it in, in Jeremiah's new covenant. And and that's and that's kind of what what we're left with at the end of the Old Testament, what we're looking forward to, and then of course the New Testament picks up on that and shows us how Jesus um, is in his work is is so central to that new covenant or that uh, what Hebrews calls the blood of the eternal covenant, using the Ezekiel language. Okay, but what's interesting here in chapter forty-two of Isaiah is the servant doesn't. <clears throat> carry out of the covenant or enact the covenant or you know write the covenant or cut the covenant or any of the things he might do with the covenant the servant he says is the covenant that is the, the servant is the personification it's all wrapped up in him so so it's a real category shift because we move from thinking of the covenant as a thing outside of the parties to you know one of the parties is the covenant and and to be um in that covenant is to be in him or 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 you could put it the other way to be in him is to be in that covenant so that now it's like this this is a person um and, and, and it's the servant. So it's very, it's very important language in understanding how the Old Testament prepares us for the New Testament. Because the Old Testament prepares us by giving these covenant promises, which then are kind of, again, packaged together in this New Covenant or this Eternal Covenant at the end, so that you're left at the end of the Old Testament going, Where is that? How's that going to play out? What's that going to mean for the people of God? That's going to be the mark of restoration. It's going to have all these benefits associated with it. this great. Can't wait for it. But then, but you also have to factor in that by the end of the Old Testament, you are told not only is this sort of package deal of the new covenant on the horizon, but that covenant that's on the horizon is actually interchangeably used with the servant himself. So, for instance, in the earliest centuries of the church, in like the 100s, um, uh, Irenaeus says, and this is very strange, he says, Jesus Christ is the new covenant. And then he goes on to explain what that means and the implications that has for his understanding of the sacraments and understanding of the covenants in in the church and everything. But, But that's the sentence that he starts with. Jesus Christ is the new covenant. Well, where does he get that? Is it just because he's looking at all the New Covenant things and saying, Jesus kind of does all those, or is the linchpin for all those? Certainly, yes. And you could get that from other passages. But, but also, there's more to it than that. There's a sense in which, in, uh, being, being a partaker of the New Covenant, which is language that we use, right? We even use this at the Lord's Supper. But being a partaker of the New Covenant, or a participant of the New Covenant, or a party to the New Covenant, is actually, if it's, if it's real, if it's true, is actually being a partaker of, and a party with, uh, and a participant in Jesus himself. Which I think is one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why in First Corinthians 10, when he's describing... Um, the Lord's Supper, he says, don't you understand that? And he uses this exact language. Don't you understand that that the the bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And the cup that we drink is it not a participation or communion or fellowship? Different English translations render it differently, but it's a participation with Him. And it's why. And I mentioned this last week, and this is going to be so important. When we start going down the road of these servant songs. It's why that label in 41 that says all the coastlands are awaiting judgment but not my servant, not my elect ones, not Israel. Um, and you say, okay, well, that's good, but um, what you then realize is that group is personified with the language of servant because the, the way in which salvation is affected in Isaiah's understanding, Isaiah's Doctrine of salvation, his soteriology, is wrapped up in the same soteriology as the Apostle Paul, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so that union with Christ, which is the fountainhead, which is the the, the kind of... It's the starting point. It's the hub of the wheel for every other blessing of salvation that we talk about. Justification, sanctification, um, glorification, uh, 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 whatever whatever blessing of salvation you want to talk about. Adoption. It, 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 the hub of the wheel is, is union with Christ. It's Christ in you. It's I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. And it's it's I, I am in Christ and Christ is in me. And And that's that participatory language that even locates the covenant as being the person is, is, is right here in Isaiah 42. You don't have to go to Christ and you, the hope of glory, because you read Isaiah 42 and you say, I, if, I, if I want the new covenant, if I'm going to be a partaker of the new covenant, I need to be a partaker of the servant. I I need him and me and me and him. I I need to be united with him through faith, um, because that's the only way in which the covenant stipulations and blessings and promises and and relational you know mediation with 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 the Lord plays out. So he's giving him as a covenant for the people. And that's also a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, um, from those who sit in, in darkness. Now, now, I want to make two more points, because I know we're, we're going to start losing people. Um, that, you may, that, that verse may f- sound familiar as well, versus, verse, uh, end of verse 6, beginning of verse 7, because that too is picked up in the New Testament um it's picked up actually a number of places but one that you may um you know be be most familiar with especially as we come into the the christmas season is um is at the end of luke 1 uh when zechariah sees baby jesus and well actually with with zechariah sorry with zechariah it's it has to do with John, but, I mean, he knows who Jesus is, and he's actually prophesying about Jesus uh, after John's born. And he says that this is to give light to those who sit in darkness. Um, and he quotes directly from Isaiah 42. And Jesus also quotes from this when he's talking to, J- when John the Baptist um, sends messengers and says, is, are you the one we should expect? And he said, here's what you need to tell John. The prisoners are being let loose. The, the eyes of the blind are being opened. All right, see you guys. Thank you for all you do for us. Um, and, and, and he just draws straight from this Isaiah 42 language. So when Jesus does those miracles, they are done out of compassion, but they're also done as kind of signs that this is taking place. Um, see you later, Sarah. Um, let, me, let me make just one more point um, in this. And that's from verse 8. Um, while, while Isaiah 42 doesn't lock down in a, in a way that can't be refuted the deity of the servant, I think we're actually going to see that even more and more as we go through the servant songs. And, and, and don't forget, going back in Isaiah, in Isaiah 9, When he says, uh, you know, the government will rest on his shoulder. He doesn't use the word servant there, but the government, it's a child who will be born. And the government will rest on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, we've just come out of this chapter where the Lord says, I'm tearing down all the idols. Anything that's worshipped except for me, I'm going to destroy. And here what he says is, my servant... Is going to be this new covenant. He's going to be the light to the Gentiles. He's going to open the eyes of the blind. And then he goes on to say, I don't give my glory to anyone else but me. And again, it's not a lockdown argument, but you say to yourself, well, it sure sounds like you've just given a lot of glory to your servant. You're actually attributing the salvation of your people and the justice to the nations that you promised that you would do. You're now attributing it to him as the agent for it. And then the Lord says, well, that may be, but don't forget, I give my glory to no one but me. And so you're kind of scratching your head at that point and saying, well, how is it that Yahweh elevates this servant to divine status and then tells us that no one else gets glory but him. And, you know, again, we, there are clearer passages about the triune nature of God. And, and about the divine nature of the Son. There are clearer passages. But, but the, the question gets raised in Isaiah 42. Or at least you kind of get led right to the edge of the, of the cliff on that. So um, and then and then you know again it, it, he's not I'm never giving my glory to a, another I'm never giving my glory to to carved idols. He so a little side, yeah. but government on uh, the government on your shoulders what does the word government mean in the- I, Oh it just it, it means that I think it means earthly rule. I mean I think that that it's 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 Announcing the fact that Jesus is going to be Lord over all, over all things, um, and so it's just that I, I forget—I forget the exact word, but it's not an unconventional or unusual word for um, that's what he's just saying. He's going to have all authority in heaven and on earth. Okay, so government as we know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And this is why we study the Old Testament. Oh yeah, exactly. So you st- say you know this didn't just arise out of thin air uh, after the incarnation it's isaiah's got it all laid out for us so all right let me pray lord thank you for the time that you've given to us we pray for the next hour that we would worship you as you deserve to be worshipped in spirit and in truth may we give no glory to any other but you particularly during this day of worship And we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would continue to illumine our hearts as we meditate on your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.